Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails here. But first, I want to introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a licensed therapist, and I'm also a professor in a training program. Uh, But before I go into emails, I want to say that uh, thanks to some listeners who actually sent me a book that they wrote, Anne-Marie Wheeler and Bert. Uh, Bertram. They sent me the seventh edition of their book, The Counselor and the Law, A Guide to Legal and Ethical Practice. Uh, Apparently, the authors were Googling around and they found my episodes in which I talk about stupid shit that therapists do. (laughs) And uh, they wanted to actually cite me, I think, in their next edition. They're they're publishing their eighth edition of the book in 2018. Again, that's The Counselor and the Law by Wheeler and Bertram. Uh, If you get that 8th edition, you might see uh, yours truly being cited in an episode titled More Shit That Therapists Do. (laughs) I can't wait to see that in the reference section. All right, let's uh, read an email here. Okay, this first email is from an anonymous patron. She writes in about Game to Grow. She says that Game to Grow seems like a great organization. Just a little um, check in with that. We had the launch at PAX, PAX West, the original PAX. We had the official launch of Game to Grow, of which I am the president of the board. And it's a nonprofit for helping people to realize and understand and use games to help communities and to help therapy and to help social skills and to help learning. And I think it's a wonderful organization. Essentially, in our culture right now, we are seeing a shift in that as as young gamers grow old, like myself, right? I, I would call myself part... The, of the first video game generation when when I was, I don't know, eight or nine, we got our Atari. Actually, my older brother saved up his nickels and dimes, like literally nickels and dimes from his chores and saved up, I think, $200, which was the initial Atari 2600 price and bought it. And we had Space Invaders and we had, you know, Tank Battle and all that kind of stuff, Defender. Uh, the E.T. game. <laughs> and I loved the Atari, and then we got our nin- first Nintendo and blah, blah, blah. And so as people like me get older, I'm 46 right now, we start actually becoming in a place where we have power and we have influence now. And for the first time, we're starting to see games being legitimized as a viable uh, tool for various things, including therapy and community building and uh, they have them in hospitals, they have them in therapy offices, they have them at community centers to help, not just to give kids something to do, but also to, uh, have, they have a higher purpose. And, and not just video games, but also tabletop, Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering, board games, this kind of thing. And so if you're interested, go to gametogrow.org. That's game to grow, not the number two, but the letters to gametogrow.org. And you can find out more information. If you're a clinician and you want to get trained on how to use these games, uh, that's a wonderful uh, tool that you can use. If you're a clinician and you work with teenagers and kids, you know that if you have 
the ability to step into their world, particularly video games, for those that play video games, you have a ticket to the other side of the river, so to speak. And, um, you know, you should use that. The, uh, the game to grow currently is may, is focusing and, and horse historically has been focusing on using Dungeons and Dragons groups to help kids with social skills and it works wonderfully, but, uh, you know, you know, it'll be expanded. Okay. The anonymous patron goes on to say that she cosplays as Ray from star Wars. And she says it amazes her that talking to other cosplayers, it amazes her that many people got into cosplay because of some kind of trauma or hardship. She said that she has been talking to other cosplayers online and asking them why they wanted to get into Star Wars cosplay in particular. And she thought that all of them were going to say things like, well, I just love Star Wars and I like dressing up. But what she found was a lot of really deeply psychological answers, people saying that they'd been traumatized or they had been disabled or some kind of issue that led them to cosplay as a, as a healing activity. And she she talks about how she's never, let's see, uh, the most confident I've ever felt in my life around other people was the 20 minutes at the convention where I walked around with my face wrap on. So she she dressed up as as Ray, and then the, in the beginning of episode seven, Ray has this goggles and and uh, face wrap, so you can't see her face at first. And so this patron was walking around with the full getup, and so people couldn't see her face. And she goes on, it was it was the most incredible out of body experience with so many people in the crowd looking at me and asking me for photos. While at the same time, I felt completely protected. It also didn't hurt that I was carrying around a heavy staff. I swear for weeks afterward, I stood taller, unquote. Yeah, I, I have a glimpse into that. I, I like dressing up for Halloween and whatnot and uh, can absolutely uh, identify with those feelings. Uh, maybe not quite as much, obviously, because I don't think I've had the courage enough to go full cosplay at a convention or something. But yeah, it makes sense. If you've been traumatized, if you've been made to feel powerless and you have an opportunity to enter into a social context that values you and, and um, all you have to do is, is prep well enough so that you can pull off the character or, dress up in such a way that is, um, you know, enjoyable for other people to take pictures with, then, um, then you get a, a very instant social gratification. You know, how often are you walking around in life and people are uh, fawning after you, coming up to you and wanting to know you and, you know, you're, you're sort of instantly famous in a sense. And, and how often does that happen to you and how socially gratifying it is? As I often talk about on the podcast, we're social creatures, and the idea that we can uh, get confidence independently is not wise. We need other people. We need other people to help us. We need other people to make us feel better. We need other people to help us heal our traumas. Uh, so often, people will ask me or email me or something and they'll say, how, how do I get over this or that? Or how do I get beyond this or that? 
and I'll say, well, what have you tried? And they'll say, well, I've tried meditation. I've tried to convince myself. I've tried to, uh, you know, just sort of let go of this. And, and then I say, well, have you tried talking with people? Have you tried talking with a therapist? Have you tried having conversations with people who have had similar experiences? Have you tried hugging people? Have you tried cuddling with people that you love? Have you tried, um, or even pets? And some people have, but it's, it's a weird thing that in our culture, we have this notion that we can heal from our difficulties independently and that we should heal from our uh, problems independently and that we should be independent. People are always telling me, I feel like I should be able to let go of this. And um, why do I need other people so much? I feel like I shouldn't need other people. And I understand why you don't want to need other people because other people are strange and chaotic and it's hard to control them so that we can get our needs met. But the fact is, is we do need other people. And so when you go through traumas, you're going to hopefully find other social ways of healing. And one of the ways you can do so is through cosplay. And so this anonymous patron has found that path, which I commend. She, she goes on, separately, I was wondering if you had any advice about indecision and anxiety and depression. I'm 24 years old, and since I was in high school, I have experienced considerable anxiety over not knowing what I'm going to do with my career. Uh, she goes on in this email to talk about how she feels terrible when other people talk about their own career paths and she feels hopeless. And uh, she says, um, and even though I'm supporting myself and living independently, I feel like a failure. I've been depressed three other times, uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So she asks, uh, do you think that getting help with my anxiety and depression would help with my career indecision? Or in a more general sense, is indecision a common symptom of depression and anxiety? So those are good questions, anonymous patron. Yeah, when you're depressed and anxious, it's going to either uh, make it so that it's well. So when you're depressed, it's really hard to do anything. You just can't. If you know, for people who have been depressed out there, like legitimately depressed, you know what I'm talking about. For people who haven't been depressed, you might not know what I'm talking about. But when you're legitimately depressed, you can't even get off the couch to do anything. You can, you're physically capable of it, but the brain processes to actually get you moving are not functioning. And and I phrase it that way because a lot of times the way that it's talked about when people are depressed is they'll, they'll say, well, you lack motivation. And when I hear lacking motivation, although it does, it's not meant to be this way, I feel like a lot of people receive it like they don't have willpower. Because all of us lack motivation at times, right? Oh, I better mow the lawn today. Uh, I lack motivation to mow the lawn. But, you know, I probably should do it. I should get outside and do it. Let's do it. Well, when you're depressed, it's, it's a billion times worse than that, to the point where even though you know simple things for people that are depressed, like going to the bathroom, right? You don't, you don't usually associate motivation to to go pee, right? Well, when you're depressed, you you can't even get off the couch to go pee. Not because you are lazy, but because your brain is in a state that actually um the the processes that involve urge and motivation and satisfaction is not functioning well. And so 
the the ability to get off the couch with independent effort is actually nearly impossible for the individual. And so so yeah, when you're if you're legitimately depressed, it's it's going to be hard to be motivated toward a career, um, right? It's hard to be motivated to go to the bathroom, let alone doing all the necessary legwork to develop a career. The other thing is, is if you're anxious, that will also absolutely make it hard because developing a career often involves a lot of social anxiety. You have to network, you have to apply, you have to go to school, you have to get trainings, you have to be rejected at at um, interviews. The, the most mature, most self-confident, most differentiated person, when they go to an interview, their ego will crumble. I have seen the most well-put-together, most accomplished individuals go to an interview and directly after just feel like crap. There's something weird about interviews in our culture. There's so much weight put on them. And I, I imagine it's like being an, act, an actor or actress when you go to a audition. There's, you're, you're putting your whole self on the line and, and you're, you're asking another human being to directly gauge your worth. And that doesn't happen very often so starkly, right? When we're, we're always gauging ourselves socially in terms of our worth, but when it comes to applying for a job or trying to get into a graduate school or something, it's, it's either yes or no. You either get the job or you don't. You're either in the program or you're not. And it's black and white. You're either acceptable or you're not. You're either good enough or you're not. You're either uh, you know the best of the pack or you're not. And when that is in the air and when it happens, it feels terrible. Again, even to the most mature person. I, self-disclosing here, have had the luxury of not having to apply for anything in a long time. I be Aside from my doctorate program, which I should do a whole series of podcasts about applying to my doctoral program, but aside from that, I haven't had to apply to anything, really. I, I've uh, been in private practice at Antioch, I, I never applied for the jobs that I've gotten there as a, an instructor because my mentor, Paul David, was always dragging me into it. And so never had to apply for that. There's there's various other gigs that I've had as a person in mental health, and and none of them I've really had to interview for. Or I knew someone, and they were basically a friend, and we just had a conversation, and they were like, yeah, I think this is going to work. And I was like, okay. And so I have lucked out in that. I'm trying to think of the last time like I really applied for a job, and it would have been in uh, 93, I think, back before I was a therapist. I, was a, I, was, I had a business bachelor's degree, and I was applying for various different marketing positions. And one of the marketing jobs that I got was at a hospital as a marketing assistant to the to the VP of marketing, I think she was. And I applied for that job. And then after I got that job, I was laid off because they laid off like a third of the hospital staff. And frankly, I was not doing much. And so it was a good decision. I played video games a lot. I remember, <laughs> I remember playing like, I think it was Civilization 2 that was out back then. But anyway, 
um, to any of you Civ nerds out there. I was laid off, but one of our clients or someone that uh, hired me on the spot, they're just like, oh, you're getting laid off? Hey, how about you come work for us? And so I didn't really have to apply for that. And then I became a therapist and and my the various therapist jobs that I've had. I guess I applied for internship, which was nerve-wracking. So I guess since internship, I really... But internship isn't really a huge deal because they're not paying you, so it's not a big deal for them to hire you. And then I was hired at my internship and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's been a long time. The point is, is that I know, I know, even though it's been a long time, how terrible this is. So yeah, patron, if you suffer from anxiety, then, uh, and it manifests in some way that throws a wrench into the gears of career building, then yeah, it's going to be a barrier. But here, here's my, my main thing I want to say to you, Adonis Patriot, and I actually emailed you about this. You say you're 24 years old. Now, you might think you're old, but you are not old, my friend. You are young. Take it from a person who's almost twice your age. You have a whole life ahead of you to decide what you want to do with your career. I, I can't tell you how many uh, 20-somethings I have had in my office who feel terribly ashamed for not having their career all worked out. Most people, particularly if you're interested in a professional career, most people don't have their careers worked out until they're in their 30s and maybe not even really worked out until they're in their 40s. I feel like I didn't really arrive at my career until I was my, like my my like my best state of career until I was in my late 30s and maybe even until fairly fairly recently. And so it takes a long time. You're 24 years old. I, I don't know very many 24 year olds who have a you know strong grasp on their career. Uh, you know there there are some. Uh, and the other thing is is if you're looking around at other people. Other people are, particularly on Instagram and Facebook, people are going to act like everything is going well. Not because they like to manipulate people, but, well, it's partially that. Everyone likes to seem like things are going well. But also, like, no one likes someone who complains on Facebook or complains on Instagram. I shouldn't say no one, but there's a there's a cultural uh, sort of component that's emerged over the, I think, the last five years in which there's a lot of discouragement for people to complain or to talk about difficulties on Facebook, unless it's like severe, you know, like you're going through cancer treatment or something. But but there's a lot of pressure not to complain. And so if you're just online and you're looking around, there's not a lot of people that are going to be like, yeah, I, I, you know, not there's not a lot of 24-year-olds on Facebook who who post about how their career is going down the tubes and how they're aimless. You know, most people are going to post like, oh my God, I got my dream job when it's not really their dream job or something, you know. So you're 24, you got a lot of years ahead of you and, you know, take your time, think about it. Uh, and by no means should you be shaming yourself because you don't have you know, a career worked out. You say that you're living independently and you're supporting yourself. Well, uh, you know, that's, I think, better than average. There, there's also this thing among privileged groups of people that I've seen in our current society in which, say, say you're white and you grow up in, um, in dominant American culture, you are 
basically given the world, right? You're given the privilege, the, the most the most privilege that anyone has ever experienced, right? You, I mean, aside from like royalty or something back in the day, but you, you can choose to do anything. You can choose to, to be a senator or a CEO or travel the world or become a physician for Doctors Without Borders or you can save puppies from uh, from puppy mills there's there's so many high-minded careers available to you and the choices and the overwhelming uh, options can be crushing you know this research demonstrates that when you have too many choices it actually results in dissatisfaction and depression because there's too there you're gonna there's too many things you're giving up when you choose one thing and plus it's hard to know what which one is best and so i find that for for privileged people because there are so many options available there's this huge expectation that you better choose something awesome and it's got to pay a lot of money but not too much it's got to be prestigious it's got to be high-minded. It has to have some social justice element to it. It has to be a fun job. It has to be flexible enough for you to travel the world. It has to, uh, you know, but it it has to have like all these different elements to it. And frankly, 99.9% of occupations don't have those things. There are so many jobs that are just like you go to work, you sit at a desk, you push some papers around, you earn some money, and you go home. And there's nothing bad about those those occupations. And they're often the ones that are that are available, even among the jobs that seem social justice oriented. You know, there there are people who go work for the Red Cross, for instance, and spend their whole day in front of a computer, just sort of being a part of the overall effort to help people. But they don't really they're not on the front lines. They're not passing out blankets. You know what I mean? And so. So try to lower your expectations. Uh, my grandfather, when I, was, when I was your age, when I was actually, I was like 22, 23, I was kind of complaining about this too. I, I was like, I just graduated f- with my bachelor's degree from the University of Washington from Foster School of Business, which is kind of a locally or nationally prestigious business school. And so it was kind of a big deal to get a business degree from, from University of Washington. And and there are all these people talking about what they're going to do and everything. And I started to apply and just really had no idea what I was doing. And I found that I was not getting hired by these really awesome positions. And I was only getting, like, for instance, right after graduation, I ended up working at the Foot Locker. <laughs> I was a shoe salesman in Westlake Mall, downtown Seattle. And I wore those black polyester pants. They had to be 100% polyester. And I wore that striped shirt, and uh, I actually really f- found those 100% polyester pants to be really kind of great. They were durable, and um, anyway, <laughs> so I ended up wearing those pants for a long time. After I, I had the job for four weeks, hated that job. It was commissions only. Like I, d- I don't even know if that's legal, but there were no, there was yeah. I didn't get paid minimum wage. I just got paid purely on commissions. And at the end of the four weeks, I figured out I only earned like $3 an hour or something. And I worked hard, you know. I tried to make sales. Anyway, the point is, is I was a little upset, a little depressed about my job opportunities. I was just thinking, is this – because the thing about working at Foot Locker was it was hard work. You're on your feet. I think my shifts were like 10, 12 hours. And, I mean, the entire Foot Locker – 
there were only three employees. You had the manager, the assistant manager, and me. And the store was open seven days a week from, you know, like nine in the morning until nine at night or something. So, so do the, and you needed two people working at all times. So do the math on that, right? So if you have three people working seven and you have seven days to fill and you have like 12 hours a day to fill uh, and you need at least one day off, I suppose, you're going to be working a lot. And so I was on my feet all freaking day and dealing with, you know, hey, would you like to buy? Always just begging customers to buy something. It's, you know, it's very, it's a lot of hard work. And it was, you know, I couldn't like just sneak off to the back and read a book or something. You know, it was one of those jobs you had to be on your toes all the time. And, 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 uh, so I was not happy about where my career is going. It's like, I have a bachelor's degree in business. Like, how is this happening? I mean, so I was talking to my my grandfather, who uh, built he he he's so I'm half Japanese half white he's on the white side and and he was an orphan at kind of at one not an orphan but he was living in an orphanage early in life because his his mom had uh, I think depression if I understand it right but anyway he was extremely poor grew up in a very he he had I think six siblings older siblings and. Uh, maybe five older one year. Anyway, he came from a large family, very poor. He dressed in the same clothes every day to school, and he lived on the wrong side of the tracks in Kansas, Salina, Kansas. And he just worked hard. Became you know went to school, worked hard to go to college, work worked hard in college, worked hard at. He became an architect, contractor, and bef- and then before long he became one of the most uh, important contractors in Spokane, Washington. You can actually Google him. His name is Vern Johnson, Vern W. Johnson. He is uh, known, and he was man of the year in Spokane one year, purely based on how hard he worked as a contractor and as an architect and built up a whole business. And so I went to him, and I was talking to him, and I was just like, you know, what? how do I – what do I do to get on my career, you know, to get my career going? And he said, uh, and he listened to me for a long time. And he said, well, Kirk, when I started out, I was a cement mixer. And, and so he explained to me this whole thing about how, when he started out in his career, even though he had a, a, you know, a degree, he started out at the, at the very bottom Apparently, the cement mixer was the worst job on the site. And then he moved up to, you know, this sort of position. Then eventually it was this. Then he was foreman. Then he was architect. Then he was associate. Then he was an owner. Then he, you know, he just slowly worked himself up. And then before long, you know, he's this millionaire uh, who's Spokane Man of the Year. And so he said, you know, but he really emphasized, Kirk, when I started out, I was a cement mixer. And I, that was, that's what it takes. You start at the bottom. And so that was profound to me. It was this, it's like, oh, you got to start at the bottom. Even, you know, because in, throughout my life, people are saying, Kirk, you know, you, you can accomplish so much and look at all this potential. And then you, you finally graduate and then you're just like, so, so when am I going to meet my potential? And what you don't realize is you have to start from the bottom. That's just, that's the definition. Like you, maybe if with a degree you can start a little, you can you can leapfrog a couple steps, but you still have to start very low. And 
that can feel humiliating, but when looked at in a proper way, it's actually the natural order of things. You got to go through your, you know, the lower steps before you can get to the higher steps, right? Um, as an instructor, for instance, at first I worked for free. I was a, an assistant uh, instructor at Antioch and didn't even get paid. Then I was an adjunct. Then I was a visiting faculty member. Then I was a teaching faculty member. And then I was a core faculty member, and then I became program director. And that, that was over 20 years. It took me 20 years to progress through those steps. And, you know, that's just, that's just how, you know, things work. You gain experience, you make connections. Anyway, the, the, the last thing I'll say about career development here is that when you are traumatized, particularly early in life, or you're mistreated or not parented well enough when you're, say, you know, age zero to seven, you are not given the opportunity to develop a sense of self. And we've talked about this in other episodes, particularly personality disorder, particularly borderline episodes. But the point here is, is that it's complicated, but, but the point here is, is that when you're young you're, and you're treated well enough, your parents actually reflect a lot to you in terms of who you are you're playing with Legos and your, your parents are giving you attention and reflecting what you're doing. You know, like, oh, look at you. You're playing with Legos. Let me pay attention to you. Oh, you look at that. You made that. Or what do you want to do today? Or do you want to play with Legos or do you want to play uh, at the park? And there's all these little moments where when you're treated well enough, you as a, as a developing personality, you develop this sense of who am I? What do I want and what makes me me? And how can I tell what I want? Well, when you're mistreated, and there's various ways of mistreatment, sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, being um, not paid attention to, it, if you get enough of that, then you never develop a sense of who you are or what you want. And as an adult, you, the, one of the first times you'll really run into this is when you start thinking about career. Because a career is, 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 particularly for privileged people because they have so many options, a career is, is often something that you have to decide. You have to say, okay, of the thousand different options, I'm going to choose this one option and I'm gonna, I have to you know, go to school, I have to pursue internship. I have to, you know. And so if you lack a sense of who you are, then that decision will be very difficult. You'll, you'll look at those thousand options and you'll think, I have no idea. In fact, you know, I don't even know where to begin to figure out which option I should be taking here. And the individual will look around at their friends and see them making all these choices, and they'll think, how come I'm not making choices here? Well, the fact is, is because you were mistreated, you don't, you're not connected with who you are. And I've worked with many clients before on this issue. Usually, clients don't enter therapy along this issue until they're in their 40s. So I usually don't see people at 24 who lack a sense of self because um, in general, 20-somethings don't go to therapy, uh, mainly because they don't have money or insurance or they're, they don't have time or they don't think they have time or their, their life hasn't gone down the tubes enough or they, they, think they're, they still think they're invincible like a teenager or something. Um, they have a harder time admitting that there's something that they need to change. Um, 
all those issues. Now, I'm not putting down 20-somethings. I'm just saying that there's a gradient of maturity that leads one to actually seeking help. And certainly there are 20-somethings and, and even teenagers and young people who actually will admit that they need to see a therapist. Um, having said that, I'm not saying that if you choose not to go to therapy, you're immature or something. I'm not saying, <laughs> um, God, what kind of hole am I digging myself into? My point is, is that I usually treat people much later in their life because uh, for various reasons, let's just put it that way. And when I treat people for this, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of time for me to reflect to the person uh, what they want to be doing in life. And there's a huge counter-transferential uh, urge when you interact with people like this to actually tell them what to do. You know, the client will come to me and say like, I don't know what to do. Should I do this or should I do that? And then they'll kind of lay it all out. And then uh, the way that because they're dependent, because they were made to feel as if they're not good at making decisions, they, they tend to evoke uh, feelings in other people to, to make them make decisions for them. And of course that doesn't work because the individual needs to figure that out for themselves. And so from my end, I have to fight the urge to tell them what to do or to give them advice. And um, I just keep engaging compassionately in the conversation. And in the end, if I do that enough over time, they actually start to connect with who they are and they start to connect with what they want in life. And I don't need, and and they stop asking me for advice and, and they're more, just coming to therapy to explore things on their own. And that takes time. And that's a relational thing. You need to have a corrective experience around that to actually work that out. And so for some 24-year-olds like this anonymous patron or, you know, or, or older who complain that they lack decision, they, they feel very indecisive about things, including their career, one of the possible causes of that is mistreatment that leads to a lack of sense of self in that you're just not connected with what you want. And basically, one, you're not connected with what you want, and also you don't have confidence in making decisions on your own. You feel like you always make mistakes, or if you choose, you're going to screw it up somehow. And that's because of mistreatment, right? So those are the things that I'll say about career development and that kind of thing. Um, if you want to let me know what you think about that, you can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. All right, where are we in terms of time? All right, uh, I think it's time for a break. Let's go to break. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't done so already, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. When you do so, you'll get access to all of our premium episodes in which we do deep dives into various different interesting topics. We have hundreds of premium uh, patron-only episodes, and also you don't have to listen to ads when you become a patron. Okay, so let's go to another email email here. This is an email from patron Natasha. She writes that she is a psychologist in Melbourne, Australia. Is it Melbourne? Mel- Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> I think it's Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I'm always afraid I'm going to mispronounce other English-speaking countries' uh, uh, names. You know, like Worcester and um, what's uh, what's the other kinds of uh, the the Thames River, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, uh, Australia. We have a lot of Australian listeners. 
Hey, Aussies. You call yourself Aussies, right? Um, you got Aussies and Kiwis, right? <laughs> God. Um, okay, so psychologist in Australia, and she is asking patron Natasha about uh, borderline. She treats a lot of people with borderline, and uh, she actually lost a client. Uh, a client had died, um, and she talks about that, which is hard. Um, and she also is writing about piloting a mindfulness-based group for mothers with borderline, and she's asking about using interpersonal therapy and schema therapy for people and attachment-oriented therapies for people with borderline and for people with complex trauma. Yeah, uh, I could do a whole episode on this, but I feel like I've done so many episodes on this that I... Uh, I mean, I suppose I, I could do a whole episode on interpersonal at some point and, and maybe schema therapy as well. Um, with the way things are going, I'll eventually probably get to every theory. You know, I've recently done emotionally emotion-focused therapy. Uh, what else did I do? I did a whole episode on psychodynamic therapy. And so interpersonal and schema will definitely uh, eventually be touched upon as, as my guess. Yeah, the 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 primary when interpersonal therapy, I consider it to be a uh, subcategory to the larger umbrella of psychodynamic therapy. Uh, I consider it's just the way I categorize things, but I consider psychodynamic, interpersonal, intersubjective, even schema therapy is is akin to this in some ways, and attachment oriented therapies. I consider that all to be in the same arena, and. Uh, yes, when you're working with people with borderline, the uh, and evidence actually demonstrates this, that when you work relationally, that's another term people use, relational psychodynamic, relational psychoanalysis. When you work with people relationally, then they have a much better chance of, of having symptom reduction for borderline. Um, it also is the same for narcissism histrionic. So when you're working with someone with borderline, you are working interpersonally, you are thinking about the relationship, you're trying to use the therapeutic relationship in a corrective way so that they can learn to be safe within an attachment. And they can also give you many different emotions through the countertransference transference action, have you metabolize those emotions and not come at them with rejection or with anger. And over time, this, this tends to help people reduce their symptoms, feel more generally secure about their relationships, uh, better able to manage their emotions and, and that kind of thing, and just feel better about themselves and feel less empty on the inside. And so that's all interpersonal, intersubjective, attachment-oriented therapy. Schema therapy, yeah, uh, involves trying to help people learn where they got their ideas from. And when you are uh, talking with someone with borderline, in all likelihood, they were severely rejected or mistreated as children, or um, uh, just they had a difficult time when they were young. And sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes it's less, less obvious. But when you go back there, you start to make connections between why someone would have a schema. So, yeah, people with borderline generally have a schema that other people can't be trusted. And other people are going to betray them, and that they are not lovable, and they 
want to love others. They want to be lovable. They want secure relationships, but they have, because of their relational traumas growing up, they were taught that you will be rejected, particularly by the people that are closest to you. Those are the people who are most likely to hurt you or the people who are closest to you. And that's what happened when they were very young. And so that's how they developed that schema or that template of looking at the world is through that very early experience. And then that schema, that template that upon which they live their lives dictates relationships later on in life. So for instance, because you were treated poorly and rejected as a child, either through abuse or through abandonment, as an adult, when you're dating someone and you're six months in and you text them and they don't text you back right away, because you have a schema that people will eventually abandon you, then you take that lack of texting back as a sure sign that this person is about to reject you and then you feel terrible, you feel hurt, and you get angry. And so the next time, and then when they finally do text you, you text them back and you say, how come it took you so fucking long to text me? And then that person tends to run away from you because you just lashed out at them. Well, so this is all because of relational traumas and it's all because you could say it's related to schema if you're looking through the schema therapy lens. And by understanding that, you can change your behavior. So the next time you text someone and they don't text you back, you remind yourself, look, just because they're not texting me back, that doesn't mean that they're about to abandon me. It just means that my schema and my core belief system around this is, is, is influencing the way I feel. I need, I need to look at this more rationally, which is maybe they're working. Maybe they just don't like to text people back right away, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's a, that's an awareness based an insight oriented way of trying to help people manage their lives better uh, and also engineer corrective experiences because the the better you are at able to sustain your relationships, the more likely those experiences will correct for the abandonment you felt when you were young. And then the other component is having build, building attachments uh, uh, through the therapeutic relationship and through other relationships to help one feel more secure. Anyway, so patron Natasha in Australia, I hope that uh, that little jag is um, enough <laughs> to tide you over until I do full episodes on interpersonal and um, attachment-oriented therapies and schema therapy. Let me know if you have other questions. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Terrence. Patron Terrence, I should say, is uh, in a band. He's in a band called Hospital, if you want to check them out on Spotify and whatnot. And he, I think he plays bass, and he plays in, in, in his band Hospital is the drummer from Pavement, I don't know if we have any Pavement fans, but Patron Terrence plays with the drummer from Pavement. And the drummer uh, from Pavement was the drummer during the golden years of Pavement. Uh, for instance, the album Crooked Rain. For you Pavement heads out there, you know the the uh, sort of seminal work of, of that album, Crooked Rain. I listened to that album I don't know how many times. I think it was early 90s, early, like 93-ish when that came out. And yeah, I, it was back before streaming, back before internet. So I just had a you know a small set of CDs and that was one of them. And I never knew exactly why I liked that album uh, by Pavement 
I, to this day, whenever I it comes up randomly, I always I and I'm around other people. I usually look at them like, "Do you like this music?" And they're like, "Well, eh. you know," because it's it's very sloppy rock. Uh, there was a there was a whole slew of sloppy indie rock that came out at the time, like Built a Spill. Man, Built a Spill is just so great at first. Uh, I mean, they're always great, but that that second album, I I'll never forget. I was I was actually um, uh, just about to start a show. I was I've been in various bands over the years, and I was about to go on stage to play. And in the bar, they had a a jukebox. And they played Reasons, which is on There's There's Nothing Wrong With Love by Built Spill, uh, again, uh, 93-ish, 94. And when I heard that song, Reasons, I, 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 I was transformed. Now, you listen to that song now, and you're like, yeah, you know, it's just another one of those indie songs. But I'm here to tell you, when that song came out, it was, it was a brand new sound. It was right at the beginning of that movement. And I just thought, what is this? It's so sloppy, but it's so good, and it's got all this complexity to it. And Pavement Crooked Rain was sort of in that vein for me at the time. Anyway, so Patron Terrence. Oh, so I've been thinking <laughs> – this is another jag. We're in the episode for a while. If you're if you're still listening by now, I, I hope you know, you're probably a fan, so uh, I hope I'm not bothering people too much with this. But I was on a road trip for work uh, – uh, this week, and I was sort of daydream, daydream, daydreaming about the podcast as I often do. And one of the things I thought about doing was doing episodes on particular songs and just analyzing them. There, there are songs as a musician and as a music uh, listener myself. I, when I listen to some of my favorite songs, there's so many little things I want to talk about. <laughs> Maybe I, Berto and I could just do whole episodes in which we just talk about particular songs and. And break it down. The problem is, is that YouTube and Facebook don't like it when you use copyrighted works and have an algorithm that just like flags you for being destroyed by their machine. And so I, I'm guessing I would just have to have those episodes on the RSS feed. So to you YouTube people, uh, you might want to get on the RSS feed just in case I release. Uh, I know we're actually, Berto and I are going to do an episode on on music soon and we're going to play music and uh you know actual play music off spotify and stuff and so um that can't be on youtube so if you're a youtube listener uh, you might want to get onto your phone app and listen to some episodes anyway so patron terrence is uh in a band called hospital and with the drummer from pavement from during the crooked rain years (laughs) uh and patron terrence says hello kirk if you had a chance to ask Bowen one question, what would it be? If so, I so a little. Uh, so he's just asking if you if you had the chance to ask Bowen a question, what what would you ask him? I love this email because most of the times when people email me questions, they're usually huge questions. You know, like uh, like Patron Natasha's question is great and comes from this really interesting place and uh, motivates me to go on and on about various things. But they're so huge. You know, Patreon Natasha's question is using interpersonal attachment schema therapy with borderline, you know, that to answer that question in a full episode, I would have to probably spend a couple weeks prepping for that, you know, whereas a question like, what would you ask Bowen if you could ask him a question? I, 
you know, I encourage more people to email me questions like this because um, I think they're fun. So what, what would I ask Murray Bowen? And the, the question I would ask is, what was it like growing up in your family? There, there, there's, there's some literature on this. In fact, his whole anonymous uh, article that he wrote is, is an article in which Murray Bowen – Murray Bowen is an fa- early family therapist. He's probably the most uh, well-respected theorist in family therapy his ideas of differentiation, triangulation. I did, I've done whole episodes on him. But, uh, but the point is, is that he wrote an article, a famous article in which he, over the span of, I think, like 10 years, he did therapy on himself in relation to his parents. So he's an adult. And when he would go back to Thanksgiving and Christmas time, he would sort of manipulate his family <laughs> um, in a good way that he thought was a good way to help everyone, including himself. And so we we have a glimpse into his family, sort of, but I'm really curious as to what his family was like in more detail. I would just want to ask him more questions about what his family was like, uh, partially because I'm just curious about who he was and where he came from. But also, the his, his theory s- seems to be very much a reflection of what his life was like as every theorist is. Every, every theorist pulls from their own psyche and their own experience to help them develop their theory. And so I, I just, and, and the way he saw families was just so interesting. And I would just want to know like what led to all that. So that's what I would want to ask him. Um, I also turned the question back to Terrence and said, well, what would you ask Bowen? And Terrence said, I'd probably ask, how the fuck did you come up with all of this? <laughs> <laughs> in, in other words, how, how did you come up with all of this, um, all this theory? Uh, and it's because and, it's pretty interesting because it wasn't just a family therapy theory. It was a theory about all of human life and all of life in general. It was this overarching theory that, in essence, said that all of life is moving toward togetherness and separate and and also towards separateness. Every organism wants to move in towards itself or other people like it and and also wants to move away from it. Uh, positive negative yin yang kind of thing. And and it the metaphor makes a lot of sense when you when you look at humans in families and development and and just individuals as they move through life. We all want to, you know the extroversion introversion thing, right? We, we all want to have contact with other people, but, but we also are repelled from other people. We all want to lose ourselves in relationships, but we also want to retain our own individuality and, and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what Paige and Terrence is like. How the fuck did you come up with all this? And because he's a musician, he properly uses the word fuck because, you know, musicians are hard edge people. <laughs> if, you, if you listen to this podcast, I tend to swear a lot too. Um, all right, let's go on to another uh, email. Okay, this email is pretty serious, different sort of tone here. It's an email from uh, someone that I'll re- keep anonymous. Uh, by the way, when you write in, if you could tell me whether or not you want me to include your name or how you want me to refer to you, that would be nice. Uh, 
usually I will err on the side of, of anonymousness or I can tell if it should be anonymous. You know, patron Terrence writing in and asking, what would you ask Bowen? I would, even if he said, even if he didn't indicate, I would assume that it would be okay to read his, his name. But th- this next email, uh, either the person told me that they wanted to remain anonymous or I just knew that they wanted to remain anonymous. So uh, anonymous patron wrote in and said, basically, she, she has a, a pretty interesting account here that she writes, but I'll summarize. She met a man and they were together for 10 years and he was uh, from, from an early life he exhibited signs that he wanted to kill other people. He was, he talked about how he fantasized about wanting to kill his mother. He, as a young person, he had fantasies that he wanted to kill other kids. And after the Columbine murders, the school actually became concerned about him. They found a list of people he wanted to kill at the school and they expelled him. And he was in various different treatment programs. He saw many different psychiatrists and therapists, and they had diagnosed him with many different things like OCD and antisocial and oppositional defiance and depression and all these things. They would, they would give him various different medications, and nothing seemed to work. And then she met him and thought that she could change him and she could help him. And when, and there were times when he was great, like he was, she would talk about how when there were moments when he was just a really wonderful guy, but there were these times when he would just, he would just change, like his face would look different and he would rage and he would say these really awful things and uh, just traumatically awful things that, that he would say he would want to do to her and other people. She said that he was he was always obsessed with guns and with knives, and he would make bombs actually, and he didn't have any friends, and you know he, he's just that classic profile of someone where you uh, eventually re- hear about them in the news where they've gone on a killing spree and killing killed all, all these people, and she eventually left him. Uh, uh, as she was threatening to leave him, he would say, "Look, if you leave me, uh, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get depressed and I'm gonna kill a bunch of people." And she would, he would say that, and then she would stay with him because, even though she knew it was wrong to be manipulated that way, she she didn't want to have other people's blood on her hands, even though she knew it wasn't her fault. She just didn't want uh, her her husband to to do this sort of thing. But anyway, she ended up leaving him and. So her her question is, as a society, what can we do with people like this? She says, people told me to get a restraining order against him, but if he was planning on breaking the law to kill me, he wouldn't care about breaking a restraining order. Um, Let's see. She says, you can't arrest someone for being angry, and you can't arrest someone for uh, possibly doing something in the future, right? So... She she's just wondering what we can do. Uh, she says this guy he just says all the classic signs of someone who's going to do something horrible, and what can we do as a society? And you know, this is these are very excellent questions, and this is not my expertise. Although 
as a podcaster who frequently gets asked these questions by media and listeners and other such people, I, I've developed um, an understanding about this issue. And there's a lot of things that I can say. The first thing I'll say is that it's impossible to know who there's. So there's a lot of people like this. There's a there's a lot of they're mostly men, but there are women like this too. There's a lot of people who have this presentation where from an early age, they have these urges to hurt other people and they have fantasies about, I mean, everyone has fantasies about revenge or about power or about, you know, it's like, it's, it's why star Wars is so fascinating to people. It's, it's why revenge movies like, Death Wish or even like The Fast and the Furious, these movies. It's, there's a reason why those movies are so popular. It's because we all inside of us have this desire to smite our enemies with with physical force. It's it's something ingrained in our culture or in our DNA or something. Hard to know. But we all have this, and some people just have it a lot more. And when they're upset and when they feel humiliated or when they feel uh, that they've been transgressed upon, they will engage in, in a fantasy life to defend themselves from the pain of being humiliated and, and feeling powerless. And so their way of coping is to engage in a rich fantasy life about power. And they might even start to manifest these fantasies in real life by obtaining weapons or having lists or making bombs. But they never, but, 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 so here's the question how many of these people actually do bad things to other human beings? Well, we don't really know because it's hard to, it's hard to study this sort of thing because you can't just send a survey out to people and say like, how often do you think about killing other people? The chance that people are going to be honest about that is pretty slim. Plus these people are pretty rare. That's, that's the other thing is, is people who are like this are, are very rare. You know, people like to talk about how, uh, you know, something five percent you know, of CEOs are psych- psychopaths, or actually, I think they say like a hundred percent. And there's all this talk about psychopaths, da da da. Well, there's a huge difference between just your general psychopath and the sort of person like this who actively fantasizes and and has outbursts of anger and, and almost a another personality that emerges when they when they get angry, and so the um the there's not a lot of them and the question is what percentage of them will actually do something and 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 kill indiscriminately or kill anybody and the the prevalence is very low there there's a lot of so there's not a lot of people like this but among the people who are like this the amount of them who actually go out and go on a killing spree or murder is extremely low because the rate of murder is actually is actually pretty low. The chance that they'll, uh, my guess anecdotally, the chance that they'll kill themselves is probably greater than the chance that they'll kill someone else. Again, it's just anecdotally, but my point is is that uh, the amount of of people like this is low, and the amount of people who actually go on these kind of killing sprees is, is extremely low. When you just look at the millions of people who live in this country and the amount of weapons, uh, including knives, that we have uh, in our houses, and you think about the amount of people who actually intentionally kill innocent people, uh, the, the rate is extremely low, very, very low. Now, it doesn't mean that's not a problem, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything about it, because we should. But 
there's a fair amount of misinformation and people, you know, people are in general, in my experience, way more afraid of being killed by a murderer or by a terrorist than they are at being murdered or being killed while driving their car. Even though uh, the flu and car accidents and accidental drug overdoses, like, you know, you just accidentally take a Percocet and drink too much wine, will the the amount that the tens of thousands of people who die every year from just those those things compared to the the 50 people a year who get killed in indiscriminate kinds of murders anyway um i don't know the exact numbers on that but it it's vastly more likely you're going to die from the flu or from a car accident or from uh, a, a prescription drug that you're being given to you by your physician or by a hospital infection that you get just because you visited the hospital. It's just far more likely you're going to die. And yet people in the media and our politicians are talking about the, the very rare instances because they make, they, they're just more visceral to us and they affect us. Anyway, my point is, is that it's, it's, it's not very likely, um, but it is a problem. And when it comes to people like this, yeah, we just don't understand them. And, the, the the general label that should be applied to people like this is antisocial from the DSM or or psychopathy or sadism. Uh, we don't have sadistic personality disorder anymore in the DSM, but I believe we used to. And all those labels could, could be applied to that. Often these people are abused when they're young or mistreated in some way and, or – they they just or they're narcissistic or they just need some way of coping and so they have these urges and they have these thoughts and most of them are able to suppress it and to keep it in a fantasy world uh, but obviously some people uh, act on it now how do we detect those people who are going to act on it versus those people who are not going to act on it and the fact is we just don't know I would suspect it has to do with social support because as social beings, as I've been saying in this episode, we need other people. And so for these people, they need people just as much as anyone else needs someone. And when they become increasingly isolated, either through their own doing or from outside forces, they, they have less reason to live and less reason to restrain their antisocial urges. And again, I just want to point out that they're not monsters. They're just exaggerations. You know, for instance, with borderline, we all know how much it hurts to feel rejected and abandoned. All of us have had that feeling. We've all been dumped. We've all been made to feel like no one likes us. And we all know what that feels like. Well, for, for people with borderline, they just have a history that makes them feel that much more often. Well, the same is with this. We, Like I've been saying, we all have urges to get back at our enemies or to humiliate people who have humiliated us or to assert our power somehow. We all, we all have those urges. Whether you want to admit it or not, it's just a normal human impulse of, you know, when, when someone uh, you, cuts you off on the freeway and— and flips you off, even though it's not your fault. 
everyone has an urge. I'm guessing even the Buddha himself, even the Dalai Lama himself, um, both of those guys have would have the urge to flip back or to run that person off the road or to uh, pull them over and throttle them with your hands. You know, we all, it's just that we're animals. We have, we have a reactivity around that, the fight or flight response, right? You know, the fight response. And so we all have that. It just so happens that for some people, they get it more, uh, possibly a confluence of genetics and early experiences. And, and, and so for people who, uh, who don't have a severe form of that, we all know what it's like to suppress those urges. Uh, you know, I have an urge to ram this person's car, but I'm going to refrain from that because that's not good. Uh, whether or not you have empathy for the other person, like you don't want to hurt them really, or you just don't want to get in trouble, that, uh, you, or you don't want to get in a car accident yourself. It's just there's a lot of reasons why you refrain from that. Well, people who are antisocial and, and sadistic have a similar set of uh, thoughts. They just have a greater urge to hurt other people, but they, but they have the same rational sense of, of what they should be doing in life. And they think, well, I should, I should relegate this to fantasy life because if I actually act on these things, I'm going to go to jail and, or I'm going to hurt someone or whatever they, whatever reasons they have for refraining. Um, and when we are isolated, we're just less, um, we feel crappier about ourselves and we feel less connected to the world and we have less reason to refrain from destructive behavior. The, the different stories that I've looked into the Sandy hook elementary murders, that kid was extremely isolated. And I just have to wonder if he was more connected somehow, which as I said in that, I did a whole episode on the Sandy hook murders and my conclusion, you know, from afar, I didn't know this guy, and um, and it's hard to know, obviously. But I, I just wonder if we spent more more of our tax dollars on social workers who had more time to actually, because because it wasn't like he was unknown to to medical mental health professionals. They they knew about him, but there's just a lack of funds to actually do anything because you just you only have so much money and so much time in the day. And so if we dedicated more funds, perhaps a social worker could have gone to his house once a week and, and talked with him and his mom and maybe tried to get him involved in activities that he might like to do, like playing um, Dungeons and Dragons with other kids, you know, getting just getting him connected. I suspect that when these people are connected, they're much less likely to engage in these behaviors. Again, it's mostly speculation that I'm saying here. Um, so what can we do? I, I would say we need to connect with them as best we can. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice your own safety or stay married to him, for instance. Um, but as a society, we need to raise awareness about this and maybe address it with more funding along these lines, more programs, uh, more tailored programs to people like this. Uh, you know, the, the general thing that ends up being allocated for stuff like this is therapy. It's just like, you know, get them involved with a psychiatrist, get them involved with a therapist. Well, you know, that's great. I'm a therapist, so obviously I think therapy is worthwhile. But there's so many other things that we could be throwing money at like just someone to come over and play video games with him or 
just some group of kids who are similar, who like to do similar things, and they play games together. Some, you know, just some kind of uh, other. There's a lot of different op- options available to us that we're just not taking advantage of enough. There's certainly like Game to Grow, for instance. They're trying to uh, pull together these things. They're trying to help people understand how to use games and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, so in general, these people are rare. They come across as very scary, right? Their their behavior is very scary to us. But I'm here to tell you I've treated people like this, and the chance that they're going to do something is low. Uh, the, the guys that I've treated who have exhibited behavior like this, none of them, to my knowledge, ever did anything. Now, maybe they did, and they just never, they never got caught for it. But, but I, they seemingly – they had a very rich and powerful fantasy life about harming other people, and they just – you know, they just never acted on it. Or the times they did act on it, it was minor, like getting into a fist fight or something. And so, um, so that's just one thing. We just not. We just need to remember that uh, we're mostly safe. And the the boogeymen of the world are obvious, like infection, heart disease, um, cancer, car accidents, drug addiction. These are the these are the real boogeymen of our society. We don't need to worry about these people very much, but for those people, the uh, what we need to do, I think, is allocate more awareness and funds to keeping them connected to other people. Just get get the, you know get them non isolated. <laughs> appeal to what appeals to them. Get them out of the house. Get them involved with other people in a way that they want to be involved, not in a way that is counter to their preferences, like things like talk therapy might not appeal to them. And so, so that's uh, what I have to say about that. If you're in a relationship with someone like this, then you go to a domestic violence or interpers- uh, uh, intimate partner violence um, advocacy group and get help because you can't be expected to leave people like this on your own. You need support, you need problem solving, you need legal support. And um, there's there's ways of extracting yourself from people like this. And in general, it's almost impossible to do it by yourself. So it's not your job to save these people. It's society's job. Uh, you're, you're, it's you deserve to have a better life. <laughs> and patron, I'm glad I'm so glad that you extracted yourself. Uh, you're a compassionate person. You cared about him. You saw the good in him, and you wanted to help him. And you sacrificed many years of your life toward that effort. But eventually, you got out of it, and I commend you for that. It's a very courageous thing that you did, and um, you should never feel guilty. And it doesn't sound like you do about what he might or might not do. Um, so. Uh, I guess the the last thing I'll say is that I'm not very optimistic. One, I, I'm proposing a solution of non-isolation for these people, and I, I have very little confidence that our society is actually going to do that. I am seeing movements in the opposite direction in terms of funding for this sort of thing. And so I'm guessing in 50 years we'll be suffering in exactly the same way as we are right now. I, I don't see any movement along these lines. So th- there's just so many things we need to overcome as a society. One is we need to 
start spending more money, more tax dollars on mental health. We need to destigmatize mental health. We need to uh, be able to uh, normalize these feelings and say like, well, you know, they happen for people and here's what you can do. We need to not be so afraid of these people because our fear about them actually makes it worse, right? Um, kicking them out of school, for instance, you know, it's like that just furthers his isolation. It makes him even less connected to the world, less likely to want to help out, you know. Um, our our society is saturated with weapons, so that doesn't help. Um, I, I can't imagine in 50 years we'll have that drastic of a um, policy regarding this sort of thing. You know, I, as a podcaster, again, people reach out to me whenever there's a mass killing or any anything that's related to psychology. You know, every big news story that comes along, they'll they'll contact me, and uh, so I periodically have to relook at the literature and and interface with society and and have a lot of these thoughts. and And in the t- in the nine years that I've been a podcaster, I've seen no movement. I've seen no development. I've seen no change. Uh, maybe there's some changes that I'm, I'm not aware of, maybe some programs that have been initiated, but not to my knowledge. The state of mental health is exactly the same as it was nine years ago. There's no difference. And so uh, what's the chance it's going to change in 50 years from now? I, I just don't, I just can't imagine that happening. Whenever these mass killings happen, there's this huge amount of awareness and talk in the media, and then it always gravitates towards gun control and then the the on the left it it goes towards gun control and then the right reacts by saying we shouldn't be talking about gun control we should be talking about mental health cuz they're not concerned about mental health they're they're just concerned about bringing up another argument about gun control and then and then a couple of weeks go by and then the the issue blows over and then and then we're just waiting for the next now indiscriminate murders happen on a daily basis in America, but it just so happens that some of them happen to be talked about is the issue. You know, there's some, some of these mass killings are just so interesting to, you know, I don't know, news people that they end up being talked about more than others. And so when a particularly interesting one pops up in the media, the same thing happens all over again. The same people say the same things and then it blows over and nothing changes. And I'm and every time this happens, I keep I keep just screaming at the screen and just being like, "Let's get off of the fucking gun control issue, okay? It's not going to change, you know. If I could wave my magic wand, yeah, I would get rid of guns, especially like the super deadly ones, you know. Like, uh, I have a friend. I'm actually going to a friend's house later today. He's a hunter and he hunts fowl. He hunts like you know." what do you call it? Pheasants and stuff. And, you know, you can take an issue with that, but he's got a shit ton of guns and they're all like these big clumsy rifles. Right. And, uh, you know, that's one kind of gun ownership. Right. But then you have these people who just have these assault rifles. Anyway, the point is, is that they're yes, gun control. Let's talk about it. But really if, if, you know, that's not going to change clearly, (laughs) In our society, in our political system right now, gun control is not going to be altered anytime soon. Um, 
that is a, a, if I was to put money on it, I would say in 20 years, we're not going to see significant change in, in gun ownership in the United States. So, so sure, let's talk about it, but you know, let's realize that it's, it's kind of futile. So what we should be doing is talking about what everyone can agree on, which is what can we do to prevent this? And now the left is more likely to say, let's raise taxes. And the right is likely to say, let's not, but the amount of money that you'd have to spend on a program like this would be pretty wouldn't be significant there would be a a small amount of money compared to compared to the military budget compared to um other kinds of programs that we have in the United States Medicaid and this kind of stuff uh, the amount of money we'd have to dedicate to this would be pretty slim and what i would propose is, let's see if i can come up with it off the top of my head is that essentially i guess it would be a dshs thing a, a department of social health uh, program that would be able to flag certain people that are like this into a national database and that uh, these people could be targeted with programs that would be tailored to their preferences, you know, keeping them connected and that monitoring of them. So as they, and have psychologists involved to assess them and as their risk starts to escalate, additional programs get added that are empirically supported. Um, as I'm saying this, I wonder if there are programs like this. I'm wondering if psychologists are involved in stuff like this, but because as I'm saying it, it's like, well, I can't be the first person to think of that, think of this, which I'm sure I'm not. But anyway, so it would look something like that. And how do we get stuff like that going? There's plenty of people who want to do this, but we just need money for it, right? Uh, and, and we don't have to wait until one of them actually does something horrible uh, to to do something, right? It's like we should try to prevent it. Anyway. All right. Well, uh, if you haven't already, become a patron of the podcast, do so. Also, let's do a patron raffle. What do you say for swag? Okay, so let's give out some swag to some patrons here. Uh, in, in the spirit of Dungeons & Dragons, I'm going to roll my 20-sided die here. Okay, got a 12. And I'm going to scroll down 12 times. And that brings me to this section of the patron list. Looks like people who started in April and, uh, and May, or say April and March of 2017. We got patron Rachel, patron Coop. I mean, I'm choosing people who have their photograph uploaded on Patreon because it's always great to see people's mugs there patron patron rachel patron cooper looking good rachel looking good cooper looks like you're with your partner there. that's cute uh, we got patron michelle and looking good uh, patron michelle we got patron ed here looking good ed you're looking down into your photo not the most flattering point of view you should whenever you do a selfie you should probably try to turtle it a little bit you know put the thing above your head i i respect Patron Ed, I respect your confidence in doing an, an, a very low-angled selfie. Uh, you're a better man than me. And we have Patron Oliver. Hey, I know Oliver. I've communicated with you a bunch of times. Okay, so patrons Rachel, Cooper, Michelle, Ed, and Oliver, who joined us in early 2017, I'm going to be sending you some stickers. Uh, thank you so much for being patrons, people. You're super cool. If you're not a patron yet, do so now, and when you do so, upload a picture of yourself so I can 
uh, put a face with a name. It's just a thing that I, a preference I have of just like, I, I, when I, before I had the opportunity of actually meeting listeners, it was hard for me to sort of visualize people actually listening to this thing. You know, I, I'm in my office right now. I'm staring at a computer screen. I have this microphone stuffed in my face and, and I'm just like yammering and it feels very much like I'm just talking to myself. Uh, and when I actually see your picture, I'm like, okay, that dude listens to this podcast. Sometimes that woman listens to this podcast sometimes. And it, it sort of, it just helps me to know it's like, okay, you're out there listening. Uh, this podcast is small enough so that I, I can actually potentially know individually each of the listeners. <laughs> you know, there's there's not that many of, especially of you patrons, I, I could potentially actually know you, and I have gotten to know many of you. Uh, for instance, fa- famous patron Lyndon, who runs the Facebook fan group. Uh, that's a fun thing to join if you join that. Uh, Lyndon will post things on the Facebook fan group on Facebook, uh, questions that are interesting. Sometimes I actually don't go there cause I want you guys to feel like you can, uh, talk about whatever you want. Uh, occasionally, I don't know, once a month, I kind of check it out and see what you guys are talking about, but I want you to feel free to talk about whatever you want to, but anyway. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle in which I randomly talked about a bunch of random things. Please take care of yourself and take a deep breath and know that you are alive, which is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to be alive on this planet. So many beautiful things, so many beautiful people, so many beautiful moments. And um, let's all just count our blessings, right? Because you deserve it. (laughs) 